I'm Nicole Antoinette, and this is Real Talk Radio, a podcast filled with honest conversations about everything. As I shared earlier this month, we are now in the wrap-up phase of this podcast, which will be ending on July 21st. There will be a wonderful new episode every other week until then, which includes today's episode with my friend, Kate Grace. Even in running, you literally could poop your pants. Like that's actually something that happens to people on big stages, right? Like that's a pretty, like not fun thing to happen, right? And so you kind of just, I do think that one way to, that's, yeah, success happens because you get out there, you put it all out there, everyone's watching, they're all excited, you think you're all ready, you kind of suck, or like just doesn't just doesn't go well, and then you wake up the next day and you're like, okay, well, I'm still here, I like that sucks, my ego's bruised, but I'm gonna go for a run today or not, and like my life will go on, you know, um, and I think that the more you do that, the more you realize that it doesn't like in the end. It, it just gives you this amazing freedom because you're like, in the end, nothing can hurt me, you know? Like, that I can, it, it gives you this courage that, you know what? Like, I can go out and lay it on, on the line, and there's nothing that I'm afraid of that I won't survive. Kate is a professional track athlete and Olympian who believes in the power of chasing big goals and in sharing that journey authentically, most often on Instagram. You can find her at FastKate. This is Kate's third time on Real Talk Radio, I think. Heck yes for repeatedly interviewing your most beloved friends. And in this conversation, she shares such honest stories. We talk about failure, motivation, favorite inspirational quotes, uh, courage, how to be brave when you're afraid, what it takes to get the best out of yourself, and more. I really hope that you love it and her as much as I do. That's going to start for you in just a moment, but not before I take another opportunity. I will take all the opportunities that I can to thank the Patreon community, the 400 plus people who have made this listener funded show possible for the past six years. I was super unsure back in 2015 of whether or not a listener-funded show was even possible, especially one that could eventually grow to pay everyone involved. The guests, the sound engineer, the host, the transcriptionist, that was my vision, but I had no idea if that was possible. And creating this podcast with sort of an untraditional model, funding model, felt like a wild leap of faith, like a big leap into the unknown. And the people in my Patreon community who took that leap with me, or maybe who created the net that made the leap possible, I don't know where this analogy is going, but those folks, I will be forever, forever, forever grateful for them. And even though this podcast is ending, our Patreon community is not. It's changing, of course, and those folks and I are currently in the fun process of co-creating the next phase of the work together. I'm actually really curious and excited to see what comes next, and it would be a delight to have you join us if you feel drawn to a space that really prioritizes honesty, honest conversations, you know, intimacy, digital togetherness, lots of possibility, cheering each other on, you know, uh, monthly essays, live gatherings, audio content. We do lots of fun stuff that's Patreon only, Patreon exclusive. And then that community is also going to be where I decide what my next project is going to be, my next audio project maybe, maybe something different. We'll see. We operate on a sliding scale with all tiers getting access to everything. And you can find us at patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. That's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And all right. Let's get into today's episode. 
Awesome. We are good to go. Kate, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. So happy to be here. It's always really funny to like record a podcast episode with a really good friend where like you push the recording button and it's like you're almost pretending that you weren't just talking beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> also, I was trying to think this morning how long it's been since we've seen each other in person, like pandemic wise. It's been a really long time, but because we did weekly like co-working dates on Zoom for like mostly this whole pandemic, I'm like so used to seeing you in this little box on my screen. So it's so true. Those were, I mean, such a lifeblood, like especially early on in the pandemic, something to look forward to. But yeah, I mean, do you know when we last saw each other in person? No. I, I mean, it was sometime probably like late 2019. I don't, it's yeah. been a while. So I'm very excited to see you later this month. Same, same. Yeah. Those hour-long co-working sessions, it was really wild how I feel like for most of like pandemic time, there was so much stuff that I couldn't get done without the container of co-working. Like I had writing dates set up with multiple people. I was hosting a co-working group like mm-hmm. called the Get Shit Done Club, which you know about. And then like our dates, I'm like, what is wrong with me that I need like to be surrounded virtually by other people in order to get anything done? But I'm like, nothing's wrong with me. Just give yourself what you need, I guess. No, exactly. I think it was so smart of you. Again, I mean, time, literally even thinking about how long it's been since we've seen each other, it's like, was last year a year? Was it five years? Was it a month? I don't even know. Time just doesn't exist anymore. So in a way, it was really nice to have those containers. Yeah, I know. Something that like made every day not feel exactly the same. Completely mm-hmm. agree. Um, so set the scene for us. Where in the world are you? Where are you sitting right now? What can you see? I am currently in Boulder, Colorado. I'm actually not in my house. I don't even have a house here, but I am in Aisha Pratt and Will Lear's house in Boulder, Colorado, who Aisha is one of my training partners, teammates here. I am looking, so I'm looking at beautiful pictures of their wedding on Will's desk, but I am um, basically right now, it's beginning of June, about we're three weeks exactly from the Olympic trials a final. Um, so I'm training for the Olympic track and field trials, uh, which is where we pick the team to go to the Olympics. And we're kind of in our like little final session here. Um, and the reason I don't have a house here is because I recently moved to Boulder, well, joined a training group here in January, but just because the nature of our lives and the fact that we are pretty nomadic during this time of year, I didn't think it would make sense to like actually rent a place here because I'm not even, I'm at in different training camps most of the time. So I am just kind of like living at friends places and rentals until I'll probably move end of this year. But right now it feels very much like my whole life is just circling in on the upcoming competitions. Yeah. I think it's interesting. I mean, obviously our lives and jobs are quite different from each other. However, something interesting that I think that we have in common is the, I mean, obviously I know you do have a permanent place in Portland where you live, but you're frequently not there, right? Like living out Mm -hmm. of hotel rooms or like you said, friends places or rentals or Airbnbs or altitude training camps. And I move around a lot also. And I'm always interested like to hear from other people, how they create a sense of home, or if that's even something that's important to you. Like, how have you thought about that over the last, you know, however many years of moving so much for your job for running? Mm Mm-hmm. I agree with you that I feel like in many ways, our lives will sometimes mirror each other. Um, Even with this podcast, I I feel like the span of this podcast has been, I don't know, a funny mirror to my track world. I just think because when I first met you in Bend, it was like you were talking about doing this and then you've created so much out of it. But in terms of creating a sense of home, for me, it's like small. It's funny because I don't 
take lots of things, but I have like the smallest little bag of kind of trinkets that I'll take with me anywhere I go. It's like, it's kind of, it's still kind of accumulated over the years, but there's like five things in there. Well, it's my, it also doubles as my like overnight kit. So I have my eye mask and my earplugs and like emergency NyQuil pill and iron pill and a lint roller. And then the sentimental things are, I have a rosary that my mom gave me, even though she's not a practicing Catholic, but she bought it when we were together, when she visited me once in Hungary, a lucky silver dollar that Bob Lesko gave me, who's like a mentor of mine throughout my track career. This little, like just two stones, um, two, like one, uh, kind of one crystal and one, what's it, what's it called? Fool's gold stone. Um, and then an ele- elephant god, um, Erin Taylor, who is a yoga like, instructor that I knew for a while, she gave me this, is it Gilgamesh? No, not Gilgamesh. Ganoush? Oh gosh, I need to look it up. It's some like, oh man, it's some kind of like trinket for travelers. Or um, And she gave that to me once when I saw her in London. So just basically things that I've accumulated over the years. And for a bit, I also had these fake tattoos of a little monster that you had given me at one point in time. Cause that was like our little emoji. <laughs> um, but I think for some reason I used them once so that I didn't, that I don't have them right now, but anyway, those, it's just those things. Those are my things that I take with me. And I don't know. So, so you get to a new place. Like, do you take these things out and put them <laughs> on like a bedside table at a hotel? Like I'm trying to imagine you like you get, also, I would like to know what, what is the situation that qualifies as needing an emergency NyQuil <laughs> when you were like, I have one emergency NyQuil. <laughs> no, actually the emergency NyQuil is the most important because you can never sleep after races. So it's, um, I've since changed it to now I just carry straight Benadryl, which is basically can be a sleep, a sleep aid. Emergency NyQuil is like either on a plane, an overnight an overnight plane, and you can't fall asleep. That's an emergency. And it's like you have to sleep for eight <laughs> hours <laughs> in my mind. We know. You know how important sleep is. Or number two is after a race, you're taking caffeine at like 6 p.m. And it's like three in the morning and you can't sleep. That's also an emergency. So. <laughs> Great. Got it. I could just picture you like with your eye mask on and your earplugs and it's not working. You're just like, fuck it. I need the emergency NyQuil. Yeah. Pop that guy open. It's oh gold. God. That's fantastic. Um, so you mentioned, you know, being about three weeks out from Olympic trials. We're obviously going to talk about all that, but I want to go back in time first. This is something that I don't ever think that we've talked about, but that I think about like more often than you know. Um, so in 2017, I went with you to London when you were racing in the track and field world championships. And so it was held in, I think what was the Olympic stadium, right? From mm-hmm. 2012. So it's this huge stadium. It was like 80,000 people. And my, because I know your family was there too, but I had bought my tickets on my own. So I was sitting essentially not by myself, just like surrounded by strangers, right? In this (laughs) huge stadium. And my experience of being there, the energy, I mean, not just for your race, but for all the races, I mean, more than like any big rock concert, like it was, I've never experienced anything like that in my life. Like the cheering, the screaming, like what it sounds like to have 80,000 people like stomping their feet in the stands and like cheering. And I feel like I walked away from that experience just being like, how? Like, how do you, and I don't even know if this is a question you can answer, but like, what does it feel like to, I don't know, to like perform in that kind of energy, like to lay everything on the line in front of like literally thousands and thousands of screaming people? Like, it's an experience that, you know, I would assume most folks listening, whatever their career is, they're not going to like 
do their marketing presentation with like thousands of people screaming in the background. Like it's mm-hmm. such an interesting like job that you have. <laughs> and again, I don't know that we ever really talked about this, but I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about like what that feels like. It's fun having you just bring me back there because that, I mean, definitely of any of the stadiums in the world, just the championships in the UK are just amazing. And the fans there are great. It, it feels like a, yeah, like any major sports championship that you can imagine, World Cup, whatever. Um, and we don't necessarily... It, it'll get like that in different places, but it's just really special there, especially when the British athletes are running or any of the races that they're running. In terms of performing like in stressful situations, I mean, I do think the classic advice just is very true that it's just, no, no matter what you're doing, if you're doing a presentation or whatever, if just if you've, you've, if you've become very good at what you do and you just do it day in and day out in boring settings in like semi nerve wracking settings or kind of like medium level people in the stands, you just get good at that thing. Right. And so you, I am practicing at every practice I go to, at if I go to like some random small meet in Portland, maybe there's a hundred people in the stands, but when you first do that, it's terrifying. Or if like your parents are going to be there or your friends and people who care about you, that's very scary. So you just get lots, again, lots of different practice at being kind of what we talked about before, being in stressful situations, being able to have stress not throw you off your game, like not have stress be an emergency signal. Um, it can You can still be nervous and continue to perform. And it's like, finally, the culmination of that is you get in front of 80,000 fans. You're like, okay, this is technically the same as me alone on the high school track that I just did my workout. And as much as possible, have to kind of yeah, zone it out and not and, and just not overthink it. So that's the one side. I think the other side, which I'm also trying to do, is like, but there's a positive aspect of that energy, right? And it's so at one point, I think for so long I got so good at calming myself, and this is a big thing this year. I've gotten so good at calming myself, where no matter what I what I do, I have this like 20 minute meditation I'll do before my races, even in, it started in Rio, honestly, in the at Rio Olympics, where I'd listen to this guided meditation and I would um, just get like so zened out. And it was kind of the, the idea that like the lion sleeps before they hunt, right? You have to be completely calm and then, it, then in order to totally click in. So I would do that. I would be very good at getting calm. But this year it's been the opposite where I'm like, wait, I'm super calm at this point. Like, but I kind of need to get fired up. Like at one point you also need to amp yourself. Um, and that's what's the last few races have been is like, how do you get that perfect balance of ready to do your thing and on, but not over the edge. It's like the kind of optimal, like the optimal arousal for that performance. Right. Um, uh, so in a weird way, it's funny thinking back to the 80,000 screaming fans and like, shoot, that would help right at this moment. <laughs> like I, I need to pretend that they're there. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, okay. A couple of follow-up questions. Do you, this meditation that you're talking about, is it an app? Is it a specific thing you could like reference it or is. tell people about? I mean, it's so wacky, but it's, um, Porter, what's his name? Porter Vision. Porter Vision is the app. And literally, it's Patrick Porter. My mom and I will sometimes joke, so like, are are you listening to Patrick? Also, Patrick is my partner, so it's a separate, different Patrick in my life that I'll listen to like once a week is this guy that does. um, But again, I don't, it was through her. My mom is in the fitness industry. And so she, I don't exactly know like if you have to pay for the app 
or how it works. Technically, it actually comes with this headset that you can put on and there's flashes lights in front of your face. Um, but I don't do any of that. I just listen to him. Um, and it's, yeah, I mean, it's very, for me, it's become very like a priming, um, like a priming mechanism that I've loved. And I assume, I mean, it's still on my phone, so I assume it's still an app that you could probably download. (sighs) Okay. Yeah. I mean, and the priming makes sense, right? Like I think about there's certain songs, I tend not to listen to anything when I'm writing. I I like a lot of silence, but if it is, if I'm in a louder environment, there's one or two songs um, that I don't even know the names of, but they don't have lyrics and I'll like put them on like a two song Mm. playlist on repeat just in my headphones. And so if I were to ever hear that in another context, (laughs) I'm like, oh, it's time to write, right? Like, so I think it's, it's almost like a chicken or an egg thing sometimes. Like, is it the is it the thing that you're listening to that makes a difference or is it the habit of listening to the thing in exactly. a certain situation? So, but you mentioned, you know, that you used to do that, be really calm. And now you're sort of looking to have that perfect balance of the calm plus the like excitement arousal. What have you changed in your pre-race routine, if anything, to get more into that state? One of the things is visualizing the race itself. So before it would just be kind of a body scan. I would visualize myself, um, like a, I would visualize a blue liquid breathing, breathing in a blue liquid and having it kind of cleanse me and then breathing out anything. I would see it kind of getting dirty and then breathing out any of that. So this idea that I'm like cleansing myself and I'm activating all my different muscles, but now I'll finish it off where I'll actually like time my race and I'll visualize myself going through my race. And that helps prime me. I also have started to do a little bit more, um, like aggressive, like being open to more kind of like aggressive visuals. So think um, honestly, after seeing Michael Jordan's last dance or any of the co- stuff about Kobe, like the Mamba mentality. Yeah. Last dance is amazing. I'm, I'm re- my partner and I are rewatching it. We watched it last <laughs> summer and we're watching it. I'm, obviously I see my partner, Jen, you know, Jen, yeah, yeah. Um, Jen and I are rewatching it right now. And we'll like, we'll watch an episode in the dance. And then the next day we'll go on like a three hour <laughs> hike and we'll just like, talk about it the whole time. Like I, I feel like you and I could have an entire podcast just like talking about what that mentality is to like have that kind of like assassin mindset. Anyway, 100%. Yeah. 100%. And it's a little psycho. So that's the thing. It's like getting okay with being a little psycho. And I I have a little like psycho bitch in me kind of, but honestly, I feel like it doesn't come out that much. And so, yeah, literally like visualizing a sat like kind of as you said being an assassin. Uh, sometimes I I right now I'm into this like idea of being a wolf and like literally grabbing, like literally seeing myself like biting at people, which again is not something that I would ever do in real life. I feel like I need to put a disclaimer in this. Like, don't worry, Kate Grace won't actually bite you. (laughs) Yeah. So that, that's the kind of stuff. That's great. Uh, Well, that makes me think. So the other day, um, I I sent you the video clip of, um, it's funny, I could put links to any of these things in the show notes, mm -hmm. but there's, I think it's from like 2011. It's really old. It's an inner, like Will Smith was being interviewed about kind of like his success and performance. And um, I sent you this little video clip um, and he's, it's, he's talking about, I have the quote somewhere, but yeah, he says, the only thing that I see that's distinctly different about me is that I'm not afraid to die on a treadmill. I will not be outworked, period. You might have more talent than me. You might be smarter than me. You might be sexier than me. You might be all of those things. And you got it on me in nine categories. But if we get on a treadmill together, there's two things, either you're getting off first or I'm going to die. And there's like (laughs) something in that. I mean, obviously that's, he's sort of like making the analogy about being like not wanting to be outworked, but like I don't know. I'd love to dig into this a little bit more because it sounds like this is something that you're intentionally cultivating. You're obviously com- 
you have to be competitive enough to do what you're doing, but do you not feel like you have sort of that like killer instinct naturally? Yeah, it's interesting that I love, and it's when you sent me that quote, I love that quote. And that was one of the ones I think when I first started running competitively or running professionally. So back probably around when it was, when it came out or 2012, 2013 is when I found that. Uh, and it was one of my kind of key quotes for a bit. The, I mean, I think we've talked about this, this idea of really high-performing people, if that there's something a little, sometimes there's something a little off, right? Like your life is necessarily balanced. My life right now is not necessarily balanced. Maybe my life as a whole, if you take the next 30 years or like, um, yeah, or the last little bit would be have a balance, but that you become very single-minded. And then also it's this idea that as much as I try, I'm a, try to be a good person and try to be like, I think humility, for example, is one of my core values that I don't know. It's sometimes I question like, do I, do you need to be a little bit crazier in order to really be the one that's at the top, right? In order to really like want at all costs. And the way it came about actually is I took a personality test the other week um, that you, that the USA track and field was putting on or USA track and field will do uh, right now is kind of working more about um, with some sports psychologists about different ways that you could use mental training and how athletes could be using mental training to improve their performance. And so, and one of the things I think they're right now, they're doing some kind of study. So they had us do this personality test. It's with the, it's the five, with the one that's like the five different things like neuroticism, extroversion. There's five different ones. It's one of the famous ones um, where they rate, they, they rank you um, on these different five characteristics. Anyway, I was, all my rankings, the one that was strangely out of character with other elite athletes was, I think it was the conscientiousness one, where basically I was ranking myself as like relatively low performing. Like I had a low self image as if I, so I like didn't think that I was disciplined or as disciplined. So when I was answering these questions and like, um, yeah, do you have discipline or do you have grit? Um, do you want to win at all costs? Those kind of, or do you know? And the big one was, do you think that you're better than other people? And whenever they ask, do you think you're better than other people? I would say no, because in my worldview, I think that that is something that you know, that everyone should is that, that no one is innately better than anyone else. But I ranked so low in compared to everyone, every all the other elite, and so they compared you to everyone else and then to other elite athletes. And compared to all the other elite athletes that they've been doing it with, I was like way at the bottom. Kate thinks horribly of herself. Like they all think she's so much like. And and it was funny in a weird way. It clicked something in me. I was like, who who the fuck thinks that they're better than me? Like who are these people thinking that they're better than me? <laughs> so um, and and that's kind of been my way to like twist it in my mind, where it's not necessarily that. I still believe that in a general worldview that no one is innately better than anyone else. But I guess when you step on the track, you have to kind of go out there and be like, no, I'm the best. Like I'm the best out here. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think this is so fascinating because I, like I look at my life and, you know, I used to run recreationally and I don't anymore. And that was such a singular experience for me of the only thing that I have ever done where um, like competitiveness was allowed. Mm. We're not really allowed. I mean, I guess a little bit in school of the like getting good grades type of thing, but I wonder how much of this is a socialized as women thing. Like is like the sport being the one place where women are sort of given permission to like be really competitive and fierce. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I, I think it definitely is gendered. 
Um, mm-hmm. but there's like something, yeah, there's something interesting of like, how do you, if you believe that people are, you know, fundamentally equal and all of the, you know, politics and values that go along with that. And then to kind of shift into the mindset of like, like, now nah, I'm going to kill you all. I'm the best. Right? <laughs> like, but there's that, that, that is interesting. It's almost, I almost envision like you have to become like an alter ego version of yourself. Cause like, if you thought that way about yourself all of the time, I mean, then you get into things like Michael Jordan. Right. And like, right. Is that who you want to be all across the board? Probably not. But mm-hmm. like, how do you, did you ever think about that? Kind of like a, this is who I am on the track and not necessarily who I am, like, you know, with my friends. Yes. And I think more of it, yes, exactly. That's exactly it. That I think, yeah, in many ways, when you see these people who have hit such amazing pinnacles that a lot of the rest of their life, there, there can be major holes in the rest of their life. A little bit recently, I've, I think as part of it is the one of the reasons why I really do withdraw from friends leading into races because it's almost like I can't be both those people at the same yeah. time. And a little bit also is I do try to think of it in terms of like I am fighting for a, like a smaller circle of friends and family. So that like so that's in that's the way it's still communal even if it's an individual sport like for my friends who support me for so long, like thinking of you or for my family and um, for like my coaches, people who have dedicated time and energy into me. And then in that way, sometimes I can get out of this mindset. Like it's still not fully individual, but it's like, I can still kind of get into this thing where I can rip you apart for this like other greater cause. Like I used to, for example, I used to think about like my sister being in a fire and I had to run as fast as I could to get her or something. It'll be interesting looking, going into the Olympics. Cause also that, that was another thing that I was very surprised in Rio, like kind of feelings of doing it for your country. Um, honestly, it's like patriotism is such a weird thing. And I think especially like I did not grow up necessarily, um, I don't know. I just get with like a healthy skepticism, I think of like things that can go wrong with patriotism. Right. But it was, it was, so it was a surprising how special, oh, not, this is what's weird to say, because obviously it's special to represent your country, but like, honestly, it was a bit surprising at like how, how unique and special it was to do that. And I think, um, sometimes when I, so sometimes I get into this idea of, okay, like we're going to put on this uniform and I, I believe that I, in the end, this is a group effort and we're trying to do this as a group and I can be the, I'm the best person for the job. Mm-hmm. And so I will show you that. And it's not that we're, I'm like, it's, and in the end, it'll, it'll raise all of us because I know I can do it. I know I can, I can do it for all of us. Yeah. That makes sense. No, it, it totally makes sense. I want to go back to something that you said before that, you know, leading up to races competition that you'll withdraw, right, mm-hmm. from social circles and stuff, which um, is something that I ha- have always admired about you, that you have really, sh- I don't know if strong boundaries is the right word, but I hadn't seen, like, until we became friends, I hadn't seen a lot of examples of um this is what I need in this particular period of time and, like, that being communicated. And I don't know if it's maybe easier because it's more – um it's seemingly more understandable to people. Like I have this race, I have to prep for this race. Like there's something kind of like very binary about that, that I think most folks mm-hmm. would understand, which again, like extrapolating that out into other careers or, you know, parenthood or, okay, well, my kid has this coming up, so I can't, right? Like it's, there, there isn't necessarily the same kind of clear lines around it. And mm-hmm. I don't, 
I'm searching for like what my actual question is within this, but do you feel like that sense of being boundaried in running, like, did that come naturally to you? Does it extend well into like other areas of your life? What does it take in order for you to be able to advocate for your own needs like that? I have a very specific memory of in 2012, um, making the trials and being horrible with the boundary thing. So I I can say no, it was not always natural. I think I was very much I was very young. I was young, first barely out of college, like first time ever making the Olympic trials, scared to death. And I maybe we've already talked, talked about this, but basically like I my sponsor at the time, I was gonna meet the founder for the first time ever, the day of my race. Like I, for some reason I let this happen where I didn't think it was an issue where I like literally walked to lunch in the rain to meet her for the first time ever. This is the person that's now going to be my boss. So many different things associated with this of like just nerves. Also, I ended up getting freezing cold and like shivering in my bed and the, and like the lunch in itself like was nerve wracking and I had to be on edge or whatever, not on edge, but you know, just you're performing for someone a little bit. And so that's a very clear example of some time when I did not do a good boundary setting and ended up like not running well. I also just in general, I think was very, like was totally out of my element and not mentally prepared for those races, just very not feeling strong, I guess, in, in myself. And and so I, and I know in a way, I think it's like you can trial by error. You learn that that does not work and that you need to get better at it. So I think also just growing older and feeling more confident in what I do, also feeling more confident that my friends like won't leave me or they won't, they won't hate it. Um, I do agree with you though, that it is, I do think it comes a little bit more natural with racing. People tend to understand that there's like a need for one day or one week of real solitary time or, um, and they tend to give that, um, it's still going to be a little hard though. Cause honestly, even now, like I have a friend who reached out to me, not a friend, acquaintance who reached out to me, who lives in Boulder. And I, this is someone that I met at a, on a summer camp, literally 15 years ago. And in most times of my life, I'd be like, yeah, it'd be so fun to catch up and meet with you. But honestly, I like at this point don't want to. I just I want to be at home most of the time and just conserving energy. And it's that still feels unnatural. Like in a way, I mean, I'm talking about this now. I was thinking of just like, well, now I'm talking about it. So I probably should actually be honest in my response. I was thinking of just like making up an excuse, honestly. But um like I guess because I've just verbalized it, I probably should just be honest and say I'm. I need a few weeks. <laughs> no, but I, th- I think the the breaking people pleasing tendencies like that kind of ingrained patterning can go really deep. And I think mm-hmm. it's it's actually really generous when you're willing. I mean, not just you, but all of us. Like when we're willing to be honest about what our needs are and how like we want to be supported or what we do and do not have capacity for, it can feel like gut-wrenching and so scary to to verbalize that. And mm-hmm. on the receiving end of it, I always feel really grateful. It's like nice not to have to guess, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I, and obviously like we're talking in the context of our friendship, but there's never a time where I'm like, does Kate really want to hang out? Does she actually have the energy for this? Like I trust that like if whatever the thing is, if you don't have capacity or desire for it, that you'll just say no and that will be yeah. fine. And there's like something, it's really stressful for me to not know where I stand with people sometimes or mm-hmm. to like try to read between the lines or do they really want to do this? And so then I try to put that back on me of like, okay, 
I need to be that clear communicator in my relationships as well. Like, I think it's a gift to be like, I need X, Y, Z, right? Like, can you do that? Um, Oh, it's so true. Honestly, it's the place I would say that not the hardest, but one of the places I've seen it that I'm still working on it is with Patrick, who's my partner now of- Not meditation, Patrick. (laughs) Not meditation, Patrick. (laughs) Patrick O'Neill, who, and I'm just thinking about this right now because we- a lot of times during my intense training, we're not together. So I will go to these training camps um, that maybe, for example, the last one was in Crested Butte, which is at high elevation. We're at like 9,000 feet. So we're there for about eight weeks just to get really in shape. And when I'm there, I'm living with training partners. It's all, it's all about getting prepared and you're just, that's all you're living and breathing and eating, just like running, resting, uh, eating. That's just, that's what it is. And then I come back here and Patrick is here now. And so I'll be with him for the next three weeks. And it can be an interesting thing where it's not that he's asking anything different of me, but just like in our interaction, I sometimes will feel like, oh, maybe I'm staying up a little bit later. Or I'm just like things that you're doing that I might and usually in a relationship, you are compromising on certain th- aspects, right? And it's me learning how to ask for what I need and also kind of identify what I need, you know? And in many ways, like having him is so wonderful and I it's very calming and helpful for me in the final stages, but it's been a growing experience, yeah, in terms of like, again, setting boundaries within that relationship. Okay. I'm going to ask a question that you can feel free to not answer because like I'm projecting and like making some assumptions. So if those are incorrect, like, please feel free to shoot this down. In my romantic partnership, I am the needier person. Like I'm I'm, like struggle with anxiety. I have like, I have like some food intolerances. I like don't sleep well. Like there's just, I'm like more of a delicate flower, right? Mm -hmm. Like I feel like Jen is just, he rolls with it. He's really whatever. <laughs> and like, that's so great. And he's like, so supportive. And, um, it's funny in what you just described, whether because of your career or because of personality differences, it sounds like potentially that you are like a needy or need things to be more specific in mm. the relationship than he does. And I'm wondering how that feels for you. And I ask because sometimes this is maybe I should go back to therapy. <laughs> sometimes I feel quite guilty about that, that like, because I often am the one that has stronger preferences, we usually default to my preferences Mm. and like, that's fine. But also, I don't know, there's like something in there that's interesting to me. So if this is at all resonant, um, I would love to hear your thoughts. Yes. It's funny when you say, I do, I do think that we're needy in different ways. I think that around racing, yes, like most of our life will start to revolve around what like my timeline, my timing, my eating. Um, yeah. Whether or not I want to socialize, lots of that stuff. That's so that I think sometimes on the opposite side of that is like, I can get kind of isolated and he might start, he might want more like relationship time together. Whereas sometimes I get into my, like too much of, as we're talking about this race mode where I shut down, including like people that I love most. And so maybe I don't feel good to get that guilt. Cause I feel like he, in a way he, he has that side of him that he like needs or wants my attention a little bit, or just like cuddle time. I don't know. But I think the issue for me with it is like, yeah, when we get, we kind of default into this thing where like, 
around race around race season, which honestly is half quarter of the year, more well, than that. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's not like it's, it's just like, a couple of times. No. Like it's a big <laughs> chunk of the year. Yeah, exactly. It's like most of the time. And also because we're not together all the time in my training, it literally is a, probably at least half the time that we're together. It's all on me. Then in the fall, we yes, we'll like still default to my needs where, and I, I kind of start to resent it almost. Cause I'm like, wait, no, you just say what you want. Like, just, just tell me where, where you want to go to dinner or tell me or do, do this thing. And it's got taken us a little bit to get through that. Cause we, I realized that like, actually most of the time when I'm with him, I actually want him to do exactly what I want to do. Like, don't tell me what you want to do. <laughs> I don't know. So I'm giving him like two very opposing signals. <laughs> no, that, that's fascinating. It's almost like the, the parallel between what you were describing before of like sort of who you are in general versus almost the alter ego you who like yeah. steps onto the track that it's like, you're also these like two different <laughs> girlfriends almost. Like, and yeah. obviously like you're the common denominator in all of these things. So of course it's you, but it is mm-hmm. interesting like how we adopt different roles and like how the rules change during different times mm-hmm. and like what that looks like in the relationship to be like, no, what I want is for you to tell me what you want. And then another time, like, I don't care what you want. We're going to do what I want. Like, so it's so exactly. real. It's so Honestly, real. Honestly, I feel like COVID was good for us in that because, in a way, at least we broke through realizing that we can that we need to have discussions about that underlying component, not just kind of yeah, like the argument about whether or not we're going to dinner or whether or not he is telling is is coming to the table with an idea of where to go to dinner. Like, it doesn't actually. I don't actually care if he's like suggesting pizza or not, but the underlying of that is maybe I'm annoyed that he hasn't, or I don't know. I, I mean, the, the, basically that our conversations need to include some of this underlying component. And then I think we've gotten much better at communicating about that. One more relationship question. You mentioned that a large portion of your relationship with him for the entire time you guys have been together has been long distance. Mm-hmm. Do you have any, like maybe one or two like practical things that you could share? It's a, it's a funny, it's a question that I get a lot because like Jen and I have been long distance like quite a few times and people are always curious about like what it takes to make that work. Like, is there anything tangible that you feel like helps you when you're long distance? I do think it's different for what you, for the kind of person you are, I guess maybe like your love language. I know that. So I think first of all, communicating about that for him, having a FaceTime every day or as much as possible, um, even if it's literally two minutes, like we'll get on, just say hi and see each other's faces. Like that is huge for him. And so we've gotten much better at, I used to not like the idea of FaceTiming because I thought, oh, it's going to have to be a 30 minute ordeal. But we've gotten much better at like, it literally can be a minute of just like it, the, the time it takes for you to send the, I love you text or whatever right. is going to be the FaceTime. Um, so that is, I think just and recognizing, Yeah. And I guess for me recognizing that even if I don't love FaceTime, like that is actually zero part of my day. And I mean, it's an important part, but like, I don't need to fight it, fight this, you know? Um, right. The FaceTime is not the hill that you're going to die on. Right. <laughs> and honestly, I think all, COVID has gotten me over uh, as we're talking about, like, I'm now so used to seeing everyone on online that I'm much more comfortable with FaceTime. <laughs> um, the, for me personally, I like having plans to see each other basically. So whenever like, there's never a point in which we don't know when the next time is that we're seeing each yeah. other. Um, and so, yeah, like, and usually we try to have it like relatively frequently, but again, I've had to do, I got really into like the miles, like credit card hacking for miles in order to like basically get flights. Um, because it obviously there's a expense component to that, that is like, you can't, 
not take into account, but we do try to see each other frequently or at least like have a plan for when that next time is going to be. Those are two things. I mean, honestly, the other thing that people, for a while, it would be kind of hard when we first got back to, like would get back together after being apart. And this is something that people don't really necessarily talk about. Although in a weird way, in my little circle of athletes who travel around for training camps, I've been able to talk to other people other athletes about it. And so I know it's, I, I didn't ever feel uncomfortable with it because I knew it was normal, but just like literally feeling like you're with a stranger, like not feel like it t- takes a few days to get back in the vibe of being together. And that I get maybe a little annoyed or just like even being like physical. It's just like, you're it's like, am I, who am I kissing? I don't know. Just some things, things like that, that used to freak me out and now don't anymore. Yeah. That's yeah. I don't know that I really hear people talk about that that much. The adjustment period, but it's so true. The the mm-hmm. other thing that um, I found challenging was, you know, you settle into a rhythm of what it is to be long distance, and then when we would see each other, that obviously it's all your real life, but it didn't feel like doing real life together because it's like okay, you're together for this weekend or this week or whatever. So you're together basically twenty four seven. Maybe you're doing only special things, fancy things, right? Like having so much sex or whatever the situation is. That that's it's it's real life because it's your life, but it's not average life. And so, you know, it took, it was like deep into our relationship where he and I realized we haven't lived average life together. We're basically on long distance hikes where that's its whole own weird Mm -hmm. thing, or we're separate. And so during, um, most of COVID when I lived with him and his dad in Massachusetts, and obviously that was also strange because we're in a pandemic. I'm not going anywhere. I don't know anyone except for him and his dad. So that, you know what I mean? It's not like I had friends and other things, but it was the first time that we had both been working at the same time in the same place. And so there's like something to that too, like what you're describing is like, if you're only together for a week or so, how much of your other stuff do you put on hold to then be together? It's, It's almost like these oscillating states of obsession where it's like all in on the relationship and then all in on training and then all in on this, which it's not good or bad. It's just interesting. Yeah, I was like nodding feverishly while you were saying all of that 100%. <laughs> um, and I don't know if I have necessarily any tricks for that. I honestly feel like kind of similar to you all, we're still getting better at it. And COVID was also good for us. And then it forced us to yeah, to live together and just fi- kind of figure that out. But I, yes, like, for example, even just a small thing, I read a lot when I'm alone and I love reading and then we get together and it's, I don't read or very mm-hmm. much. And so I've tried again, then that's probably just a boundary thing. Like, okay. Which again, he would care zero. Like he's on his phone. He wouldn't care at all. If instead of watching this TV show I read and he was also reading her on his phone or watching the TV show, but for some reason I'd get nervous about it. I yeah. don't know. It's so funny. Oh my God. Look at us. We're just a cute little humans. <laughs> um, I want to go back quickly to, um, the 2017 world championships, something else that I wanted to dig into. So that meet, I know, didn't end the way that you wanted it to, right? Like your performance in the final was not what you had hoped it was going to be. And we had a mm-hmm. conversation afterwards where you said that something that helped you was realizing that your career was essentially like success requires continually failing on larger and larger stages. And I would mm-hmm. love for you to talk about that a little bit because I think, I just think that's, I think it's really fascinating and I'm curious to hear more. I love when you find things that I've said that I'm like, no, nah, that was a great thing I said. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm so wise. Yeah, <laughs> I, I will be the note taker of your wisdom in our friendship. Don't worry. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, again, it gets kind of back to it. Almost circles back to the initial question about how to not be nervous. And I honestly think 
the like unfortunate truth about not being nervous is you kind of just need to put yourself out there and like your worst fears do come true sometimes. Not your worst fears of like, you're going to be naked, but I don't know. I mean, even in running, you literally could poop your pants. Like that's actually something that happens to people on big stages, right? Like that's a pretty like not fun thing to happen. Right. And so you kind of just, I do think that one way to that's yeah, success happens because you get out there, you put it all out there. Everyone's watching. They're all excited. You think you're all ready. You kind of suck or like just doesn't, just doesn't go well. And then you wake up the next day and you're like, okay, well, I'm still here. I like, that sucks. My ego is bruised, but I'm going to go for a run today or not. And like my life will go on, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that the more you do that, the more you realize that it doesn't like in the end, it it just gives you this amazing freedom. Cause you're like, in the end, nothing can hurt me. You know, like Mm -hmm. that I can, it, it gives you this courage that, you know what, like I can go out and lay it on on the line and there's nothing that I'm afraid of that I won't survive. And I mean, obviously in ge- bigger life, yes, but I think generally in any work scenario, right? Any kind of embarrassment that's going to happen or failure, y- you will wake up the next day. It's just the question of, yeah, having to come to terms with the fact that like, maybe you didn't do it right. Maybe I have to go back to the drawing board. My training that I thought was good wasn't. And you have to like rethink maybe some assumptions but that's all okay. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's been interesting this year. The 2017 one was big for me. Also the 2019 was even a little bit, not worse. Cause it's always sucks to not do well, but, um, not as fun because I, that was at the, the trials. So that was at the, um, in 2019, it was like deciding to the, it's not a Olympic team, but it's a world team. So it's basically the Olympics, not, not in the Olympic year, we have world championships. And so there's a trials for that at the U S trials. You need to get top three in the U S in order to make it. And I've been going back and forth with before that race about whether to run the 1500 or the 800. And those are two events that I do and I'm good at both of them. And honestly, the decision that year that we made that year, I was good at the 15, but it was slightly out of like, fear or trying to decide, trying to base it based on the fact that we thought it would be easier to make the team. Like it's going to be easier to get through the U S trials. I can get through the U S trials because the 800 runners were just so amazing. And then we'll figure out worlds when we get there. And in my mind, I was like, I know I probably am better at worlds. I'm better at the world stage at the 800, but like it kind of just took, just like took the quote unquote easy answer and the big kicker there was like, I went in the 15, I, against kind of my gut d- judgment, went in the 15 and ended up finishing fifth. Didn't, it was a super close race, like the fastest race ever in the 15. So it was, ended up being that both teams were very hard to make and I ran really well, but I was just clipped at the line. And so I didn't make the team. So I didn't go, even go to Worlds that year. And that for me was just a big one. Cause it was like, fuck, like you can do the, the safe, the quote unquote safe strategy. And it still doesn't work out, right? Like it's still kind of, and then you're like pissed the whole summer because you regret that you didn't do what you wanted to do, right? Like, so not only are you have to go through the same like quote unquote failure things, maybe I would have still had felt those things in the 800, but I'm also like, yeah, I'm mad because I thought I was a little bit cowardly, I guess. Um, And so that I think has definitely 
impacted the way that I've gone about this last year, uh, just different decisions I've made and going into the eight at the trials is just like, okay, it's very hard to make this team. Like it's not easy. It's by no means like guaranteed. Maybe it's slightly easier in the 15 just because, yeah. But again, it's like why it's, it's never guaranteed. So why not just do the thing that you want to do? Yeah. No, I mean that there's so much in that kind of what you were talking about, about like being willing to fail and then having the experience of, I mean, I'm using the word failure as, you know, people have different relationships to that word, but I actually don't think that it needs to be such a negative thing. I think we do like mm-hmm. so much mental gymnastics to try to convince ourselves that it wasn't a failure. Like you, like if you don't do well in a race, you are not a failure as a person, but like it's, <laughs> you might've failed to reach your goal. This is how I felt yeah. when I quit the PCT. That it was like, I fail. I set out to hike the whole trail and I decided to quit. So like that was a failed goal. doesn't mean I'm a failure as a person, but I think there is something really powerful in like normalizing failure. And then also what you said that it's almost like not inoculates you against disappointment, but there's something really empowering about realizing that like you can be completely disappointed and you can be so crushed or so embarrassed and still be okay. Mm -hmm. Like I used to think that that it was like, I'm going to be disappointed and like everything's going to be over. It's like, it's Mm -hmm. a both and like it can go so badly. And also (laughs) you can be fine. Like I think about this with like heartbreak or losing, you know, like a friend breakup or something where it's like, yeah, it's so awful. And eventually you'll be fine. And there's just Mm -hmm. like something in that, that like in the moment is sometimes harder to grasp, but I'm interested, like, how do you, whether you want to use the 2019 example, like how do you talk to yourself like during times of perceived failure? Like, is there like a larger story that you're telling yourself about like the failure or the journey? Yeah, I, in many, I mean, I'm trying, I'm just trying to think in some ways, am I telling myself a narrative yet? I definitely will tell a narrative in terms of like, that. this is a, um, this is a journey and I am going to, I will turn around from this or whatever, but in the immediate aftermath, um, I feel like I do go through different stages. Usually I'm actually, it's usually this thing where I'm actually a little bit dazed right after the fact and everyone else is embarrassed for me and I'm not there yet. And so I'm kind of like, I just try really hard and I'm here and I can't even think straight. Like I'm blacked out. And so usually I say that I have like a bad race hangover. So it's that's with everyone else around me feels really bad for me, but I don't really care. The next day is when it sinks into me. And usually I have that next day hangover where I'm reading everyone's text and I'm like, shit, they all think I sucked. (laughs) Not sucked, but like, oh man. And this even happened this year after I ran a race in Eugene like six, like 10 weeks ago. And I ended up, I finished pretty far in the back and I made a stupid mistake, but my time was really bad. And so I was getting all these texts and everyone's like trying to console me. And the next day I'm like embarrassed. I want to just crawl into a hole and like, I mean, honestly, I, I think the biggest thing I do is just let myself feel it. I think that's the, right. It's like the classic thing is like try as much to be in the moment. And I do think that sport has helped me because you need to do that a lot of different ways in sport, right? Like right now, for example, I'm really freaking nervous about the trials, but I have to just like as much as possible be in the moment and kind of the whole like Zen mind of like, let the thought come in and not judge it. And I'm not going to be graded hundred percent of the time, but I do think that just knowing it's going to pass is helpful and like not moralizing, not making any rash decisions, just like letting me have myself have that day. Yeah. That's the thing. And also like kind of some dark humor. Honestly, I feel like humor is such a saving grace in many different ways. And, um, especially around friends, like, yeah, friends that you're very close with or just like your very, very inner circle that 
you can go be upset, but still be like, okay, shit, that sucked. Like, let's like, let's go have like, get some food or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, yeah, those are all kind of things. It's not anything necessarily magical, but, um, I do think in a way it's giving yourself that one, for me, it's like giving myself that one hangover day. Um, and I guess I call it a race hangover, but just cause it's like, it, it hits me later, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, but then kind of just like get it, forcing myself back into my routine, you know? Yeah. And so basically not, not let myself mope. I don't mope about it after a, like literally a day, I'll just force myself back out of it. Um, usually I'll avoid social media as much as possible, like seeing other people celebrate their successes as much as I want to celebrate them, like trying to just, you kind of try to eliminate that noise. Um, yeah. And then like, just get up the next morning and yeah. just do whatever your routine is. Just like get back to work. Yeah. It's, well, it's yeah. almost like, it's an, inter- it's an interesting both end of letting yourself feel the feelings. It's not like you're pushing them down and not letting yourself be disappointed or, you know, whatever, because that like the truth comes out somewhere, right? Like if you don't let yourself feel the feelings, it will come back up in another way. It's right. like allowing yourself to feel it, but not making it mean too much. But that like seems to be true both for success and failure, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it's it's sort of the, it's whatever that kind of classic advice is like, don't believe like the best or the worst things that people say about you, right? That like it, for someone you're on a pedestal and like, that's not realistic. And for someone they hate you, that's not realistic either. And I don't know, like not making any one thing mean too much. So true. Exactly. And I think if anything, that's even more so. Yeah. Like right now people get into the habit of you have a good workout or you have some kind of good, you you get some kind of good feedback and it puts you over the moon. And that can be almost as damaging because it kind of like throws you off your path. You don't, you don't do whatever the small things are that you want to be doing, or you kind of get cocky. Um, The one thing that I do take, I guess the one narrative I tell myself is that like the emotions the anger or frustration emotions can be very motivating. And so I guess the one thing that I will tell myself is like, just because this is bad, like that, this can motive can be, a, can motivate me for future successes, I guess. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm necessarily going to be successful in the future, but it, it can be the motivator. And honestly, I feel like you are someone that I've learned that from just like the power of like that fed up, that like fed up mentality. Like I'm fed up with this, with this at this point, like let's like the power to change. Mm -hmm. And I don't know for you with drinking or different things for me, it's like, if I'm just, if I've lost a few times, I'm like, this freaking sucks. Like, and that kind of feeling, even after the Eugene race, like a few weeks ago, I was like, what? No, this is, I'm not this person anymore. So yeah, I was pissed the next day, but I knew that that anger was going to be like a good motivator for my next block of training. Mm -hmm. One more question on this, because you were talking before about sort of uh, what your pre-race boundaries are, right? Like with mm-hmm. like uh, maybe stepping back from friends a little bit and like creating that. And you mentioned sort of the like post-race text messages and stuff. And this can be as it relates to racing or just like larger in life. How do you like to be supported like during times of failure or during hard times? Like what makes you feel supported? That's an interesting question. I, <laughs> part of me thinks, I mean, there's never a perfect answer, right? Because I always, I always think about this in terms of what I should tell other people. And even though I go through this all the time, I like never know what to tell people. Nobody does. They- no, that's why I'm asking, right? Like we do, <laughs> yeah. That's why I think it's like worth talking about. Yeah. Um, honestly, I appreciate hearing from people. I appreciate not feeling ignored. Even, but it's a weird thing where like I'm like I don't really want to talk to you that much, but feeling that you like still love me is nice. Being like. 
kind of someone honestly thinking like, oh man, like that was a tough one. Like, um, I, I don't even know what the exact wording would be, but you can acknowledge something was bad and not trying to make it into something better, but just say, um, sometimes it's like, I, sometimes I like questions, like asking, like, how do you feel? Or like, what are your thoughts? Um, although I do say sometimes, yeah, I, I would say that I'm trying to think it obviously in different points, I've had different like perspectives, but I do usually like if someone gives me the chance to get my thoughts out yeah. because versus someone just trying to make me feel better or assuming something about the race that maybe, maybe wasn't true. Someone who's asked like not a leading question about, about the experience. And then I can like give them my perspective. And usually the perspective isn't as bad as like what it looks like on screen or whatever, or there was some positive that I would take away. Well, it's like the it's it's the double edged sword for what you do that it's so binary. Like you either mm-hmm. win or you don't. Do you know what right. I mean? Like, and that that's not the case in so many other. Like, I feel like in so many other areas of life, we allow more nuanced feelings, and we don't necessarily mm-hmm. assume how someone's going to feel at like a loss or a certain rejection or something. And it's it's like I think that it would be very easy for someone to watch you not win a race and make all kinds of assumptions about like what that means when like maybe it was actually a great race for you and it was just a better race for somebody else, right? Like, right. And, and so you're, I think, and again, we're talking about this through the lens of running, but I do think that this has larger implications of like not assuming how somebody feels about what you think might be a bad experience, right? Like giving mm-hmm. them the space to be like, it's, it's, it's the, the, the takeaways that I'm pulling from this. The two things are like, one, acknowledge it right? Like mm-hmm. reach out to the person, name what's happening, acknowledge it, but like give them the space to contextualize what it means. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good advice. I love that. And you put it beautifully. <laughs> to get, together, we have made good advice. <laughs> um, so I want to ask you, I know we were talking about the, the Will Smith quote, but I know you have, I think it's like a notes app in your phone or is it a journal where you keep like a running yeah. list of like what motivational yeah. quotes t- tell me about this thing. <laughs> Maybe if you have it on hand, like read a couple that are really like fueling you right now. I'm, I am very interested. Yeah. I mean, I, I honestly have this, I've had this note app for, or I've had this list of quotes on my computer now for, I don't even know, probably four years. I have ones from the 2016 Olympics and yeah, just like throughout my daily life, things I'm reading, I will put things in here and usually each year I start up a new one because it just becomes so long that it would be too much for me to look into. But it's been kind of fun. The last thing is I this last for the last 16 weeks leading into the trials, I made this little kind of journal, or it was more so just like a page for each week that it was kind of just um like a bullet thing where I was checking off what I was gonna do each day, like make sure I do a moment of mindfulness or take my collagen. I don't know, things that ranged from, but mostly just like very menial tasks, but kind of just this idea, like, how will I know that I've gone into the trials doing everything, you know? Um, anyway, so I went through my like 2021 quotes and I put one on each week and I haven't, I've tried as much as possible not to look ahead. So it's kind of like this like fun surprise after the fact. (laughs) Um, but, and yeah, I mean, they range from very, they range, yeah, I mean, they range from different things. They're the ones I've liked recently. There's all this ones about um, fire. Victor Frankl quote, in order to give light, one must endure burning. Um, and this idea that like a fire burned itself out completely. And I think that's for me, this thought of how in a race are you going to like 
give ever like how do you end a race just on your last drop you know and i think recently in races i have been i don't know like standing up and i'm done i'm like wait why am i still on my feet should i should i have mm. like fallen over right now and so this idea of like how kind of back to this um how do you get in that mindset like how do you literally yeah give every last inch of what you had the one that I, I think I posted on Instagram about this that I totally loved. Um, it's kind of longer though, but it's, okay, I'll read it for you. Um, sometimes we sometimes we forget how far we have traveled while we, while we are looking ahead to the next steps. It's good to lie down and remember what it took to get this for, for. All those karmic hoops we had to jump through and all those overcomings. It's good to stroke our face with love and to remind ourselves how much courage it took and who we would have become if we hadn't braved the journey. It's good to say thank you to the inner spirit that walks within and beside us, whispering sweet somethings in our inner ear, reminding us that we are simply and utterly worth fighting for. We are simply and utterly worth fighting for. Hmm. I love that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, especially the part right at the beginning of you know, if we're always looking ahead to the next thing, we're not, I mean, this all sounds like very cliche, but you're not like appreciating what it is that you have already done. Like if the only thing that matters is the next thing, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I feel like that's kind of a sad, that would be a sad way to exist. Yeah, exactly. And I think also just like being proud of ourselves for what we've accomplished. I mean, I think even for you with the podcast, like looking for me, Sometimes I get in this thing, I'm like, oh man, like have I wasted the last few years in terms of like not having the best results, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, I don't know, just looking and being being okay with, yeah, like seeing that we have come this far. Like we can be we can be proud of that and continue to fight. Mm-hmm. The one this week is a man has two lives and the second one starts when he realizes he only has one. Ooh which I feel like I saw on some Instagram thing, but I thought it was deep. <laughs> oh my God. I feel like it would be a real joy for me to put together like various 16-week journals where like I get to choose the quotes. Or like I also have like a very long notes out of my yeah. phone of just different quotes and stuff. I'm like, oh, I don't know in what situation I would do that. But if I were to ever like make a journal or something, I feel like, uh. yeah, it's, it is interesting like what the words are that stick with you. Mm-hmm you know, and like the thing that's like just the right thing at the right time, like that that's, yeah, I, I remember it's funny. We're like, I feel like we're having an entire conversation about 2017, but 2017 Mm -hmm. is the year that I hiked the Arizona trail, which obviously like you came out and met me on. And there were like just a a couple. Yeah. I feel like I had a few quotes that I would like keep front and center in my phone. It's the things that you just like think about over and over and over again. And yeah, being able to collect like whatever it is that feels like wisdom for you at that mm-hmm. point. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting to think of what quotes do for us, you know, cause at some point it just, yeah, they're just words there. I mean, honestly, some of the ones, sometimes a lot of them would come from your emails, um, like little nuggets of wisdom from your emails. You're right. Like, I don't know if there's any greater thing I'll ever do with these, but it is just grounding for me to look at them. And I do think it changes throughout. Like I do think having as you said, one for you around the Arizona trail, like it kind of brings you back to a certain mindset. Like even the ones that I used in 2016 before Rio, I'm not necessarily using those same thoughts now, uh, but it's kind of fun to look back sometimes. And it's almost like a 
it weirdly, it's like a journal of where my mindset was. Yeah, no, I mean, definitely. Or like, I, I almost feel like it's a a snapshot of like what you're working on, like mental toughness wise, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, because if, if it's like really focused on like the fire and the giving the last drop, right? Like, what does it look like to be courageous enough to like go to your edge like that and not back yeah. off? Yeah. Yeah. To be, to like either <laughs> you're getting off the treadmill or I'm going to die, right? Like <laughs> exactly. there's something in that. Yeah. Um, so we are, we're having this conversation the first Sunday of June, obviously, but the episode will go live on the 23rd, which I think that's the day before the first round heat of the 800, right? For mm-hmm. you. So that's like very interesting, auspicious timing. I like that. Tell me about the day last year when you found out that the 2020 Olympics were going to be canceled. Like that thing that you'd been orienting toward and preparing for, for so many years. How did that feel? I've been thinking about this a lot recently. It was, I have, so I woke up that morning. Uh, it'd been kind of for a few weeks. It had obviously COVID had been building or COVID was happening. I think we were in the middle of a lockdown, but this was still the two week lockdown when we all thought like it's spring break and it's going to be over in two weeks, right? We're going to go inside. Um, so it was the two week lockdown, quote unquote. There had been talk, Tokyo had talked about postponing, but in my, but my coach was very much still like, we're pushing through this. We're, we're still training. Nothing is changing. We're still going to like, we're going to put get our heads down. We're going to get through this and we're going to all go to Tokyo. And I think he had, he felt like he had to do that just to give us some kind of focus. But because of that, I want to say like, I really did not think it was possible. Even with, I know I was just head in the sand, right? It was like, we, at that point I was within 16 weeks and we were just going. So I remember I woke up that morning, I got a text or something. So I opened my phone. I, I was in bed still. I saw that they had been canceled and I like immediately started sobbing, like audibly crying. And I'm trying to think back, like I literally cannot remember a time in my life when I have like wept like that, like cried like that. Um, I mean, I'm sure there is, and probably when I was like in high school on point, but literally again, immediately crying, called my coach, was like, I don't think I can practice. I'm I can't, I like don't even I can't even get out of bed. And kind of like decided to go to practice. But literally, like the whole for I want to say four hours straight, like I was, I ran alone. I cried in the warm up. I did my workout. I cooled down. I cried in the cool down. I saw this girl who is one of the girls that I would, that we would coach in like the youth group. And I think my face was just like a shoddy mess. And she kind of like awkwardly waved at her. But I do remember seeing her that day. She's like, I was kind of embarrassed that I was like so inconsolable. And yeah, I mean, the whole, again, I just, it was, it was the most emotion I think I've shown like maybe ever. And it was interesting. I mean, then I kind of think I went and got some ice cream, like kind of was able to talk. This is back to like, not failures, but just sad times. Like all you can do is just like kind of laugh about it. And I think by night I was, we like had ice cream and watched TV and I don't know, just um, were able to start kind of composing myself. But in a way, I mean, now thinking back to that time, I gain weird, not strength from it, but just like kind of appreciation for my, for myself, I don't know, or for like for my dedication, because I think in a way it proved to me that like, I do really care about this. Like there is something in this that I love and that I've really dedicated myself to. And there's, and sometimes I think going into it, I sometimes was questioning that even with, for example, like 
what you're saying, this killer instinct of this like hardcore killer instinct. It's like, do I really have this? Do I really want this? Or do I just want everyone to be happy and my team, my competitors to win as much as I do? But it's like, no, like I have dedicated myself to this. I, there is something deep in me that like believes and wants this goal. And something about that, even just the wanting, not even the getting, but just the wanting was like so powerful for me to, to realize that like at a, such a guttural level that I had this like, yeah, that I had this response. Yeah. And like allowing deep desire like that, mm-hmm. like I, it goes back to what you're saying before about, you know, if you can, if you know that you can handle disappointment, then it becomes safe to let yourself want something. But mm-hmm. so often I feel like we put the things that we want most, you know, we hold them at arm's length that it's a lot easier to say, oh, I don't know what I want than to say like, oh, I know exactly what I want, but I'm afraid that I can't have it. Or I'm afraid that I'm not good enough. Or I'm afraid that I can't do it. And sometimes it takes the thing being pulled away from us, like at, you know, like the Olympics being canceled, that's completely out of your control. You know, like that right. has nothing to do with you as an athlete or your performance. Or it's not like you didn't make a team and then you're telling yourself this story about how it doesn't matter that much to you to like save your own ego go. It's like right. in that moment, it's so raw because it's it's gone. And you're like, oh, mm-hmm. fuck. Like, I actually <laughs> do want this so much. And like, yeah. yeah. And so then what does that do for, like, do you think that realizing that you wanted it so much has changed what the lead up has been to the trials this year? Yes. Um, yes. I mean, a hundred percent, I feel that it's, it's like something clicked in me. I mean, one of the things that changed, I mean, I literally changed coaches and training groups um, in January. So with like six months to go, I ended up basically changing my like whole training system, um, which would be kind of a risk to, to put it mildly, just because I don't know. I mean, that's the whole thing is that you try, you try to work for a long time with a certain group and you try to, and then they say that like, it takes a few years for a coach for you really to get the best out of yourself with a coach. But honestly, I think part of it was, I was just like, you know what? I, as you're saying, it's like, I know I want this so badly and I must in there. So I, and I believe in myself like, like so much that I am going to fight for myself. Like I'm going to, I'm going to do what I believe is going to put myself in the best position for this. Um, and I think that just included like a slight tweak in training. And so ended up having, that's why I'm now like sitting in someone else's house in Boulder. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I would say that was the biggest thing that's changed. And honestly, like even the way that I treated COVID um, and that I treated or not treated COVID, but like treated the time what I did with my time in terms of training during last year, where I very almost immediately very much started doing like exactly what I needed to do and not really doing what I thought anyone else was asking of me or expecting of me. Um, I got a little injury a few weeks later. Part of me thinks literally part of it was just like the stress of life at that point. And I ended up taking like two months off running, uh, which is a very big amount of time, especially for us. Like that never, that very rarely happens. Uh, and really ended up almost being three months because I came back so slowly because it just takes a long time to get back to running after you're not running. And I think part of that was just like, okay, that was a little bit just like need a, ment- a mental reset, especially when everything in the world is so crazy and unknown. And also like giving my body the best chance it could to heal. And that I do, I believe that's turned out well. Like I'm rounding into shape at a very good time right now, but that was also a risk because whenever you take time off, it just, yeah, you're, you're not going to be as much on your game um, in the few months after that point. 
Yeah, I this idea of like being willing to take risks of various sizes, I think is is important because it's so easy in retrospect to like create a narrative of something, right? So like we're obviously having this conversation before the trials, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you make the team, I think it's really easy for someone to then say, oh my gosh, like you were so smart and insightful <laughs> to switch coaches because you like knew that this is what was going to be best for you, right? If you don't make the team, I think there's an easy narrative of like, well, you know, you took too big of a risk, like it, almost finding yeah. meaning where there isn't necessarily meaning. Like very few things are if A, then B. It's usually mm-hmm. A, B, C, D, six, unicorn, seven, purple. Maybe it equals something, right? <laughs> like it, all these things get added together and there's like so many more variables than we think. But it's, I appreciate the reminder that like essentially we're all just making what we think is the best next step in our lives, in our work, in our relationships, like in our hobbies, whatever. Like you just do what you think is the next best thing, but you have no guarantee of whether it's going to work out. Like nobody can give any of us a guarantee for anything. And so it's Mm -hmm. like, you just do it. And sometimes it's going to work out and sometimes it's not, but how much more, like what you were saying about, um, you know, in 2019 or in past years, choosing to run the 1500 instead of the eight, because it like seemed easier, even though it was going against your gut instinct. Like it's a lot easy. Failure is a lot easier to live with if you've done what felt like the right things for you to do along the way. At least that's Mm -hmm. how I feel. Yeah, that's exactly it. And so maybe in a weird way by having the Olympics being taken away, it again, primed me to, to be in that spot where I wasn't yeah, I wasn't scared to exactly, it's like do everything so that I had no regrets. So even if it's, even if it doesn't, it doesn't end up working out, I have done the things, the courageous steps and the small things and been um, like all along the way, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, I mean, it's this funny back and forth with process and outcome because in our sport, it's all about process until it's all about outcome. And then outcome is all that matters. Um, but that's a, a lot of life also, right? Like in the, in the end, as much as we talk, as much as I talk about process, like in the end, there's going to be, be you, you want certain results, right? Um, and yeah. And I, but, but I think even all the choices in the last year have been very much toward outcome or like because of like what I thought would be the best for this summer. Um, it also has ended up being like just the best. It's been so much fun. And so it's like, they can both, they can both happen like in a way by choosing things that I thought would, um, by choosing things like almost like more freely and that I thought would be, um, and kind of like without being self-conscious about it, it's opened me up to this, this like great training situation, really fun teammates, just like very positive situation that after 10 years as a pro athlete, I'm like, wow, this is the most fun I've ever, like, this is, I'm this, it's the most, it's the best. <laughs> yeah. I, and as your friend, like can reflect back to you, like, this is the most fun that I have seen you have in training. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something in that too, of we can get, too serious with important goals, right? Mm -hmm. I think there's a difference between taking it seriously and being too serious about it. And something that I have been working on, I mean, all of this year and last fall as well with my business coach is around the idea of mentally lowering the stakes for myself. And this is sort of part of the way my anxiety manifests of, you know, if I make this mistake, then all of a sudden it's going to mean, you know, such and such. And then I lose all my money and I don't have a business anymore. Right. Like mm-hmm. I, I make the stakes like much higher than they need to be of like, it's a podcast episode, right? Like, at the end of the day, like, and, and so part of what, what they've been helping me with is 
like, how can we lower the stakes on this? And Mm -hmm. it's interesting to hear you talk about, like, this is a goal that you care about so much that you're like openly weeping for hours and hours (laughs) and it's taken away, right? And that you're like changing your whole life to hopefully make this happen. And you can also have fun. Like, I think sometimes Mm -hmm. we do ourselves a disservice of like, the archetype of what we think it has to be like or look like as a person who like has big goals. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, if anything, I uh, like there's like whatever the phrase happy athletes race better, but I think it's for any people, it's like happy people do better. Although I hate the word happy because I feel like it's, we can't always control that emotion, but just in general content or um yeah, like actualized people, I would say. Um, but I think it's, I mean, even in a way, I'm trying to think if this is fully relates to this, but I think even with like the amount of sadness that I did feel on that one day, um, there was that, that so much sadness, but it also like, that was, I didn't, after that one day of like feeling that it kind of went away. I mean, I obviously would, the whole situation last, I mean, our, everything with the pandemic has been like horrible or not fun or not positive, but in terms of like my specific sadness around that thing getting canceled, it, I very much did like feel that emotion. And then it was pretty cathartic. And I like was then able to like, in some way move past it and just um, I don't know, be able to make for make future plans and like not really think or be upset about the cancellation. Yeah, it's just interesting how things how things change that you haven't really in ways that you could never fully plan for. But like now looking back at it, I'm like, oh my gosh, I mean, not thank God that everything happened, but like I am so thankful that that I was given that extra year because it has brought me to this place and it has given me all of this last, like it has given me this training. It has given me all of all that I have at this moment. And this isn't really to do with what you were talking about. So I think I just like kind of went on a tangent, but but I don't know. Basically, I think it does kind of go back to how you deal with failures is just, or with sadness is just also realizing that like by in a way, like letting this year happen again this is different because it was fully out of anyone's control but like there have been things that have come out of it that i am now like now looking into this trials and this olympics i can't imagine it any other way and i feel mm-hmm. so prepared and so ready and so excited and i'm like wow i'm so i'm so so thankful that i have given that i have had this last six months with uh like team boss and with joe mm-hmm I want to ask you, you know, we've obviously talked about failure a bunch. I want to ask, at least for right now, right, for like a race like this that's coming up, what is your goal setting strategy? Like, how do you define success for yourself? Is it a zero sum game of making the Olympic team is the only goal and thinking about anything else is a distraction? And so I can't even conceptualize like other paths or does it make you feel better to have more of like a tiered approach? Like this is an A goal. This is a B goal. Like what is your, I guess, like what is your mentality or what strategy works for you when you start to define what success looks like? Mm Mm-hmm. For me, it's going to be a little bit of a both and, which I feel like is one of your good reactions or one of your classic things. I very much, the goal is making the Olympic team. Um, yeah, so that's the goal. And anything that's not that goal is is not what I want, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. um, and I mean, 
And even part of that, I mean, it's fun looking back. I, it's been interesting thinking even back into 2016 recently, I won the U S trials in 2016 to make the team, but it was like a crazy chaotic race and two of the favorites fell. And so it's been something that I've felt, I actually haven't really realized until recently, just like how much kind of guilt I still feel around that. And like, I still don't own the fact that I'm the U S trials champion and, I don't know, weirdly feeling like I have this, I need to, I want to prove again that I'm there. Um, so in a way, I guess that's all to say, like winning the trials was, is another thing that is definitely like has crossed my mind is something like, okay, that'd be awesome. I don't know. Um, like that would be, I don't know, things like things like that are, but again, making the Olympic team is the goal. I think where the both and comes in is just the realization that of course, if it's an incredibly hard thing to do and there is a situation in which it takes like an incredible time to to do that and so i know that i know that there's a situation in which like there's an incredible time that's run or whatever the top three people run an incredible time and maybe i'm i run an incredible time as well and i'm not in that top three mm-hmm. and that is not and that's something where it's like you know that that's a possibility, and but I would never say that that's like a tiered goal. That that, that like running a fast time by itself is a goal. You know, mm-hmm. I just know that in that possibility, I like it's it's like anything. It's like if you give it your all, you know that you're going to be able to wake up the next day and be like, okay, I gave it my all. You know, um, but for me personally, when I'm like looking at goals, this is like no making the team. Yeah, that, that, that's what I want. Yeah. So I would love, and I don't even know if you can put this into words, but when you just said, you know, if you've given it your all, you can wake up the next day and like feel okay about that. What is, how do you know if you've done that? Like, what is giving it your all in this context? Yeah. Like if you literally can't stand up at the end, right? Like I'm interested, (laughs) like how, how do you know? Mm. I mean, well, there's two things. There's giving your all in the lead up and then there's the race, right? So I think literally part of the way, I mean, this is also, I think, part of the way to deal with nerves in many different settings is like, just live your life as like the person you want to be, right? Like live your life with as much integrity and like whatever excellence or whatever your different like adjectives would be like do that every single day. And then, you know, you were that person. And then like whatever happens on the day isn't going to like necessarily affect your identity. Right. So I think that's a major part of it. And for me, in terms of like what I've done this year, how I've like, even just throughout your whole career, there's that. And so, you know, you've given it your all in the lead up. And then on the actual day, um, that's like, I know that, well, that's the big thing. It's like you, I right now I'm thinking about, yeah, like not being able to stand up afterwards, like just like being just laid out, you know? Um, I had one race in college where I, it was a four by four and I got the baton. So it's a relay and I was the last leg and I got the baton like way back, like a hundred meters back. And I chased down a few girls and it was still, I was, I was only going for third, but cause we weren't like the best, but I like ran my fastest time ever in this 400, literally my legs gave out and over the line. And I ended up, cause they gave out a little bit before the line. I ended up actually like she passed the line first because I literally like fell over the line. But that to me was for so long, the idea of like just the best feeling in a race. Like I could not run a step further. Yeah. Um, so that was giving it my all. <laughs> 
Um, yeah. I'm fascinated yeah. with this question because I think outside of a sport context, it's almost impossible to measure. I mean, even yeah. within a sport context, it's it's like seemingly impossible to measure. But mm-hmm. the, this question, I so right now, I mean, and you know this, but I've been working on, I mentioned before that in 2017, I hiked the Arizona Trail. I've been working on essentially writing like a little tiny book about, right? Like basically mm-hmm. writing something about it. I don't know necessarily what it's going to become, but I've been thinking about it. And one of the things I'm like in the part, so it took me 44 days to like hike that whatever 800 miles. And at the time, the uh, like that year, the fastest known time, right? Like the speed record on that trail, the woman who had set that, it was like 19 days and something. Oh and I remember getting to, I mean, it's it's faster now. It's really wild. I'm sure you've seen what's happened with like FKT culture. But um, I remember getting to day 19 on that hike and just like cackle laughing at how much I had left <laughs> and like trying to imagine how she had been done with the whole trail at that point. And it was a real kind of fork in the road for me mentally of realizing like, I'm never going to be the best. Like, I'm not going to set an FKT. Like, that's just, that's not my, and I'm not saying that in like, oh, poor me. Like, that's mm-hmm. just not who I am. That's not my like physical ability. And to have to be like, okay, it's still worth getting the best out of yourself, even if you can't be categorically the best. It's it's like a, I don't know if that makes sense as I'm describing it, but it was like, okay, I still have like many hundreds of miles left to do. Like I'm never going to be like the best like she is, but it doesn't mean that it's not worth trying to get the best out of myself. Mm -hmm. And so I've been thinking about that in like the four years or whatever since of like, what does that look like, you know, in different contexts to get the best out of yourself or to like give your all. And then how does that, I've, I've now I'm about to go off on a tangent, but like, how does that then relate to the level of like, life balance that you might or might not want. Because like giving your all, if you're actually going to do that, is that at the extent of everything out, right? Like, could I be a better writer if I didn't have any friends? Cause I never spent time with anyone. Like maybe, but then I'd also be sad and lonely. It's just like an, it's yeah. an interesting puzzle of like, what is it? And I think it's maybe a little bit easier to conceptualize in a, did I give my all in this like sub two minute race? But it's an interesting question. No. And even it's interesting, even when you were saying that before you even t- talked about the balance thing, I was thinking, even yeah, me saying kind of giving your all in the lead up, like, did I actually give my all in the last six months? And that's, again, where the journal thing comes in and the bullet journaling, whatever, like eating, doing small things every day. But I mean, I, if you talked, I could list off a few places, even just right now of like, no, there was this time when I, I don't know, like missed a few days here, went out too late here, whatever, whatever, like a few different things was up yeah, like being stupid with packing or out walking around. I don't know. There's just multiple times where I could say, no, okay, technically I wasn't like all in athlete for these amount of months. Right. So, but like, you're not a robot. Right. right. So it's like, that's not, it's, it's like giving your all in a sort of relentlessly realistic way. Like I think Mm -hmm. that's it. And that's, seems to almost be part of the mental training because like, if you want to, you can always find something to fixate on that I could have done that better. And that's true for everyone at any point. But like, what kind of life does that give you? Like, I'll, I'll never forget. Um, I interviewed our friend, Lauren Fleshman a couple of years ago, and she was talking about like the habit that she was working on of practicing satisfaction. Mm. And I think that's incredibly relevant here of like, at some point you have to decide to be satisfied with what the thing is, or you have it, you have to decide that it's enough because otherwise you can actually like make yourself crazy Oh, well, if I only would have this, or if I would have said that word differently, or, you know, and you just like ruminate and ruminate and like, that's not helpful either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To- yeah. hundred percent. And it's like, it's this interesting balance where, 
as you were saying, even with hiking, it's like, yeah, you have to be uh, at one point, we can be good all about like trying to be our best, but then you have to, when you're like foot hits the pavement or the trail or the track, you have to be like, okay, with exactly where you are and like enjoy the fact that you can then go out and show whatever you have. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I also think it being, being clear about what you're not willing to sacrifice, mm. right? Like, Maybe you stayed out, you know, quote unquote, too late because it was someone's wedding or right that it's okay. Maybe you would have gotten a little bit more sleep, which is in theory better for athletic performance, but like at what cost? Mm -hmm. Like sometimes I have to think about too, like going all in, but going all in while being someone who has, who is like mentally well, you know, like that, that matters also. Exactly. Yeah. Um, something that you and I have been talking about lately, um, outside of this conversation is sort of the experience of aging, like in general, like what it's, what it is as your body changes and stuff. But then also for you being like a, I don't know, quote unquote, older athlete, I'm interested in how that, if, and and like how that factors into the like lead up to this, like, do you feel like this is the last time that you're going to be in this Olympic trials position? Like, does that factor into your feeling at all? What is it? This is a huge question, but maybe I'll just like leave it there and let you pick up the thread wherever you want. Yes. I've been thinking about this a ton recently. Um, I simply to answer the question, most likely, yes, this would be my last Olympic trials. Um, just because, but at this point it'd be mostly like a, I would say still a choice saying, okay, no, I want to do other things with my life at one point have kids and just the timing. Yeah. What the, the, that you have to start making kind of trade-offs. Um, it's been funny thinking about this year, like this last kind of how I've oriented myself this year versus the last few, basically since as an athlete, like almost immediately out of college, but definitely when you're mid twenties, you kind of start to internalize this narrative that you're going to be over your peak soon. That like there's a peak and some peak that's like kind of mid to late twenties. And at one point you're going to, you're getting close to it and you're going to be, and everything's from now on, you just can be like grateful for anything, but you don't probably don't hope for like great moments. And it's just going to be like your, your, your potential is behind you. Right. And Kind of now looking back, I realized that even almost immediately after the 2016 Olympics, that's what was of many ways like what I was telling myself. Like, okay, I made I was really good here. I was like eighth in the world, but still like, meh, that was my peak. Like, even if I only been training for a year, like that's probably all I can get on myself because I'm some arbitrary age. I'm 27. And 800 runners are just not, they're just like going to be not as good. So I should definitely move up in distance because that's where my potential lies. Like, and you can move up in distance and you might be able to get a few more years, years out of yourself. And I wasn't actually saying those things, but that definitely is like in many ways what determined my decisions, like where I went to train, different things. Also, I was excited about the idea of train changing or just like experimenting around with different distances um, and doing more distance training. But yeah, I mean, there probably was also an element of just like, I thought it was inevitable. And it's been so interesting this year, especially the last few weeks or a few months as I'm training well and like, honestly, just feeling so like, just feeling great. Like I just, I can't even, if if you took away my perception, if you just like 
gave me amnesia and like tell and told me I don't know how old you are. I like honestly feel like as strong, as fast, as whatever, whatever, as ever. And so I'm just, it's just, it's this, it's this amazingly strange sensation of realizing like how much of this was I just telling myself that is no basis in reality, like zero basis in what my body feels at this moment. I feel so good in terms of my training, like, but yeah, but for some reason, like for so many years, I realized even if I was trying to work against it, that I had in my mind that there was like, it was inevitable that I, that I wasn't gonna be as good. Even last year crying at the Olympics cancellation, part of that was also like, I've missed my chance. Like I was just going to be barely making it. And now I'm like, I won't, or it's, I'm just going to be holding on and barely. And like, and I was like, I, I would tell myself like, I'm good enough that even if I'm not at my best, I can still be there. But now I'm like, wait, like what if I'm just at my best? You know, like why? I, I don't know. It, it It's such a weird, uh, interesting experience as an older athlete realizing how much and kind of also just second guessing, like, where is this coming from? Why are we all thinking this way? And like, uh, <laughs> who's gotten in my mind and get out of it. Cause, cause I, I, I don't know. Uh, Completely. Yeah. Like the, the glorification of youth in every mm-hmm. way is like so prevalent. And mm-hmm. I mean, obviously if we're looking at a longer time arc, like, of course there's truth to that. Like you're not going to be running these times when you're right. 60. Do you know what I mean? Like, so there's, but that just because it's true overall, I'm, I'm, what's what's the point I'm trying to make? It's interesting that you will never actually know. It's not like there's a light switch. You will never actually know when you have crossed the peak where no matter what you do in training, that you'll never be as fast again. Like you don't know. It's not like there's like a right. bright neon line on the ground where you're like, and now I am 31 and a half years old. And I, you know, and every day from here on, like it, it doesn't exist. And yeah. so like when you're in that time span of like, sure, I think you know, you're faster at 25 than 55, right? Like if you take the long view, it makes sense. But when you're in that window, how much of it is like self-defeating, like internal limitations that you like aren't even able to access your potential because you're telling yourself that what you've done in the past is the best that it can ever be. Like there's, that seems to me to be some like real sports psychology stuff to have to like work through. Yeah, a hundred percent. I also think it'll continue to change. I mean, it honestly is starting to change anyway. You're seeing a lot of tennis players, for example, people just, um, I'm thinking of Serena, but just different people that are just doing so well later in their careers. Also, you're seeing a lot of women doing well later in their careers. And so then part of the question is like, is all of this just based on male development? Because they have, um, and is it going to be a little bit different as we see like what it means to be a very high, high profile um, female athlete. And, and yeah, I mean, and you're right, obviously at one point it could be over. And I also think about sometimes like, oh man, if I like the, what ifs, like, what if you had this training when you were 25, like, would you just be over the moon and then, but at one point you just, you just can't think that way. Right. It's like, the story has been great. It's been fun. And like, let's fuck it up now. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's that's, that's an interesting mindset. So what does that mean to you? That last thing that you just said, like when you're like, okay, it's been fun. Let's fuck it up now. What does that mean? <laughs> I'm just saying that like, it does no one any good to think back in terms of what ifs. And I think for me, for example, like what if you had really gone all in eight after the Olympics, like versus having a few years where you're kind of doing both. Um, and 
again, does no good. And I think that there are benefits from like having more aerobic development or whatever that I did have in those, like in the, in the last few years. And when I say fuck it up now, I'm just like, like let's just like have a ton of fun. Like, let, like let's do this thing. Um, and I think that's, that's the other thing that has been a little bit different with, in terms of being an older athlete that I really appreciate again with this training group is just that idea of like, it's okay to still have fun in your thirties, like, or at any age, like you don't have to, we don't have to be all serious. We don't get to the point where we're suddenly adults. And then we're like, we can't in like enjoy ourselves and put on a great show, you know? And I think for a bit there, I got into that mindset, like, okay, now I'm serious and I'm settled down and I, yeah, I can never do anything embarrassing or silly or I don't know. Um, or like, sexy or outrageous or any uh, anything like and I think one thing I really appreciate Emma Coburn is the woman who started the group here and she's a steeplechaser and like multi-time Olympic and world medalist she's a few years younger than me but still like um I think yeah she's 30 and she is I think just the whole ethos of this training group is just one that like we're gonna it's okay to enjoy what we're doing and we're going to have a good time. And again, like we can be responsible adults or we can be responsible, but that doesn't mean boring, I guess, or that doesn't mean, or it doesn't mean anything or like there, or, there, or there's, there's just no labels. Like why, why are we labeling, labeling each other? And I think for some reason for me, for a bit there, I, I don't know. I just got out of that. I got out of that mindset and it was like, I, and I, and I think, I'm just thinking in terms of me maybe losing a little bit of fire in racing or yeah, like as you said that there's no expiration date or there's no set line that you cross over. There's also just no expiration date on like any kind of youthful energy that you had at one point, you know? And like, maybe I put it in a box for a little bit, but I'm like, I don't know, open that box. It's okay. (laughs) I think that's, that's an incredible perspective and advice again, like well outside of running that it's, yeah, we we really embody or try to step into what we think it means to be, you know, fill in the blank. Like, what does it mean to be an adult? What does it mean to be a professional? What does it mean yeah. to be, you know, a wife or a mother or, the, you know, like just put any of the sort of titles or identities in there. And obviously we get those ideas from our family, from popular culture, from, you know, from all kinds of different places. And I feel like we all just want to belong, And so we think that if we follow the rules that are set out for like that identity or that label, there's like a subconscious, almost like trying to fit the mold. So then we belong and we have love. And I mean, I'm I'm oversimplifying this obviously, but I think it's, it's so freeing what you're talking about of you can break that open. Like you can open Mm -hmm. the box, like you can be a professional and you can be incredibly dedicated and you can want this so much. And also you can like laugh hysterically and wear silly outfits and have fun. Like it's, it's so yeah. much, it's so much more nuanced if we let it be. That's exactly it. And you're right. Like all of, yes. And yes, all, like all of those categories can fit you. And it doesn't just mean that because, yeah, I mean, I still, again, want to be, I love being an adult, like an adult. And I love being, yes, like taking care of other people. And you're right, like stepping into various other roles that maybe weren't available to me when I was younger. And it's okay to, to have all the different adjectives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Take them, they and and to, you. to do those roles your way. Right. Yeah. No, I, I love that. Um, is there anything that we haven't talked about so far that you wanted to share or mention? I love that we've gone all over the place. 
I mean, this is just personal to our friendship, but I don't know. I just, I feel like it's been also, cause I know that the podcast wrapping up, I feel like it's our, the arc of our friendship has been so fun. And we literally only lived in the same place for a few months in when we first met in Bend. Um, and it's been very special to me having you just throughout that. I feel like I met you right when I was in a transition point in my life and I decided to make a big move right before the 2016 Olympics. And I talked with you all the time. I remember going on walks, talking with you all the time then to like work through my various feelings with, I don't know, with how to deal with that transition and feeling confident. And then like, we've been able to support each other throughout the year, throughout the years. And it's meant so much to me to have that support. And it's also been very fun to watch just your journey of kind of self-discovery and transitions and changes. Um, And as you said, like our little COVID co-working dates um, were such an anchor last year. Uh, And I just love that we've been on this like weirdly parallel journey and you're you're very special to me. Hmm. You're going to make me cry. Thank you. Um, I was thinking this morning, yeah, that we've been friends for six and a half years. And like you said, only lived in the same place for a really um, short amount of time. And I feel like when I think about our relationship, it's such an example to me of like, we really chose this and put like, it wasn't, um, it's, it wasn't a friendship of convenience. And not that there's anything wrong with friendships of convenience and proximity, right? Like if you see each other at work every day or you, like that can also be really beautiful and fulfilling, but it, it would have been very easy to not continue to be friends. And, um, yeah, the like parallels in our journey, I'm feeling quite emotional. I mean, this is, when this comes out, will be the third to the final episode of this podcast. And I've been thinking a lot about what is it? look like to end something with as much care and grace as you started it with. And I think that it's so natural to put a lot of like love and attention into the beginning of something like the beginning of a friendship or the beginning of, you know, you just start dating someone or a new job, or there's like all that sort of new excited energy. And maybe this is even how you felt as like a, you know, pro runner at the beginning, like there's so much energy. And then maybe over time it changed and, you know, like, what does it look like to kind of continue to reinvest in a thing, whether that's a friendship or your career, or, you know, for me with this creative project. And then when it does get to be the time, but like it's completion to not like just rush past the ending of something. Um, and so I'm thinking about that a lot and it's been really interesting within the Patreon community. People are sharing kind of what their favorite episodes have been and like how it has impacted them. Um, it's, it's been very emotional for me. So thank you. And I feel very much all of those same things right back at Mm. you. Um, if you could leave folks with one call to action based on this conversation, what would that be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take. What would you love to leave people with? I, hmm, a call to action. I'm looking at one of my quotes um, here that in my most recent one is um, I meet this life with my whole body and and then the other one is this talking about shedding of skin is taking the exquisite risk um, open up as every time we open up our cocoon and kind of contact a wider reality and I would just say, yeah, what does it mean to you to 
in your life take that exquisite risk or meet your life with your whole body. And two, as we're talking about, like do the things that might be scary, but that you'll find that you have the courage to do and that you'll look back and you won't, and you'll have no regrets. Now I feel like I'm going to cry again. I feel like I will re-listen to those last like two minutes, like very, very often. Um, That's such a good thing to leave people with. What does it look like to meet it with your whole body? Yeah, I'm going to be thinking about that. What is the best place for people to find you or say hi or watch the Olympic trials or <laughs> what? basically where should people go? Um, Instagram is my main means of connecting the outside world or like my one social media channel. Um, so fat, it's fast Kate, all spelled out one word and you can also feel free to DM me. I respond to DMs. Um, and the Olympic trials will be on NBC. And as we get closer, I will post like the exact times and dates. Yes. And so everyone can join me in cheering very, very loudly for you. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for doing this. It means you were one of the very first guests on the podcast. And then I think what our second episode was right after Rio, I think. I remember you told the story about getting locked in the bathroom or something mm-hmm. at the Olympic trials. So if people haven't listened to that, they can go listen to that episode. <laughs> um, I feel really honored that you agreed to be one of the last guests on the show. And yeah, having you involved in this creative project has meant a lot, but also just having you in my life as someone to like care about and look up to and show up for and be supported by means so much to me. And I love you very much. I felt so honored to be asked by you and I feel the same. So yeah, thank you so much. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening to this labor of love. Our music and sound editing is by Adam Day, who it has been a total dream and a pleasure to collaborate with for the past six years. And thank you especially to the people on our Patreon community who have made all 200 plus episodes of Real Talk Radio possible. You can find that community of ours at patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. It's a wonderful group of folks who crave honesty, intimacy, and possibility, and for whom I love creating essays, live gatherings, exclusive audio content, and more each and every month. If you'd like to join us, I will see you over there. Patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette.